out of town, <clears throat> which means that it's my privilege to, to meditate on God's word with you this morning. <clears throat> if you don't know me, I'm Solomon. I'm one of the members in the church. Uh, <clears throat> this morning we're going to look at a passage in Old Testament, uh, <clears throat> Hosea. Now, he was a prophet of God, uh, one of those minor prophets in the book of Old Testament. And uh, his time was unique in the history of Israel. Now, we know King David, and King David was followed by King Solomon, his son. And then right after King Solomon, the kingdom got divided. Uh, we have Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam and uh, another mighty man of God called Jeroboam, who was a commander, he did a lot of uh, valiant things in King Solomon's time. So both of them were going at each other, they became rivals. And um, so the kingdom, the 12 tribes got divided, got split, and uh, 10 and 2. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was left with a small kingdom, Judah, and then we have Israel, the whole of Israel with this, this new name that's called Jeroboam. And because of this political rivalry, what began as a political resistance spilled over to a spiritual resistance. We know how God led David, and then he was the one who made him a king. He chose him from the fields as a shepherd boy and brought him to the palace. And then his son Solomon reigned there, and he built the temple in Jerusalem, and God was God in the city of the nation of Israel. But then, after the death of Solomon, this is where the people are conflicted now. Where do we go now? We have a king who is not after serving God. And look at what... Uh, Jeroboam does. Now he deliberately, it was not a step-by-step -step progression, a slow progression into idolatry. It was not like that. It was a radical shift from what they've been used, what they've been taught, and how to serve God and be faithful to him. And what he did was, like he instituted the Canaanite gods in Israel. Now, Israel is a small kingdom surrounded by enemies. We have the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Amorites, surrounded by enemies with pagan gods and pagan worship. And now this man, Jeroboam, deliberately brings in the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah. We don't know why these two gods, maybe they were popular among the Canaanites. Canaanites were more wealthier back in those days. And uh, these were fertility gods. And people worshipped them, people, you know, did their sacrifice and celebrated feasts in honor of these gods uh, to find favor, to find favor in their, whatever that is, in growth, in, in increase, both physically and in, in, in financial, financial terms as well. And um, one of the things that stands out is these worship, the, or the worship for these gods, Baal and Asherah, the Canaanite gods, they also included a lot of sexual rites or rituals and temple prostitution. And for some reason, Jeroboam goes after these two gods and he brings them to Israel and then say, here, here are your gods, let's worship them. This is the backdrop against which God's word comes to this prophet called Hosea. And then God, tell, God tells him that Hosea, it's a unique story, by the way, and uh, Hosea is a bachelor, unmarried, living his life, a quiet life. We don't know anything about him before this time. And suddenly the word of God comes to Hosea and tells, enough of your bachelor days, go get married. But then there is a caveat there. He says, you're going to marry a girl who will not be faithful who will be promiscuous, who will have other relationships. 
but still I want you to get married to this girl. We don't know what went through Hosea's mind. He might have had his own dreams, aspirations, plans for the future, his love. But this is the word of God that came to him and he obeys. And he goes and marries Gomer. And just like God told him, she plays the harlot. She goes after other men, has other relationships. Every night is a pain for him. He's not even sure that the children who are born to him are his children in the first place. Things get from bad to worse. And one day Gomer, his wife, has fell into bad company and is being sold as a slave. Just imagine that. We don't know what led to that, the lifestyle or the promises, unkept promises. She was sold into slavery. Till she pays her, her debt, she, can, she will be a slave. Now, practically speaking, this was a great opportunity for Hosea to walk out of that marriage. She has been caught red-handed. Let's not forget the culture they lived in. It was death, it was public humiliation if you, get, if you get caught for prostitution. This was the cultural time. We don't know what Hosea was thinking, how to deal with this issue, how to deal with this shame. What were his friends telling him? His mentors advising, his parents, what did they tell him? That this lady has brought dishonor to our family. Dishonor to your name, spoil your reputation. But God tells him, go and bring her back. Go pay the price, redeem her back. And then he goes to the marketplace, Hosea obeys, he goes to the marketplace and he pays 15 shekels of silver and some 40 gallons of barley. That was the price of an average slave back in those days, especially for a woman. And Hosea pays 15 shekels of silver and some 40 gallons of barley, which equals to another 15 shekels of silver. So altogether, 30 shekels of silver. That's the price he pays to bring her back. The first three chapters of the book of Hosea deals with this story. But then that's not the main story. If you read the book of Hosea, it's just a prelude. It's just a story within a story. The bigger story is what happens after the three chapters. And that's where we're going to discuss today. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Now God is setting this up. The life, the story of Hosea. The love story of Hosea. It's just a set up for what, what's going to happen now, where he lays out a few claims of his own, where he tells his own story. This is what he says, Hosea 4, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. So this was a specific address to this people. These are the children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. So the term of the courtroom, a lawsuit. I have an issue. I have a case against you. And what is that? There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the field and birds of the heaven. And verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you and thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, where we could be together, Lord. Sing your praises and celebrate you in our lives. 
Lord, and also open, open up your word and meditate your word as well. Speak to us this morning, O oh Father. Reveal to us what you want us to see, O oh Father, and bless us. Bless this time for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the recurring themes in the book of Hosea is people's lack of knowledge. They just don't know. They don't know who they are. They don't know who their God is. That's number one, lack of knowledge and a constant disobedience to God and his word. Not a the one-time thing. It's been a recurring theme, a repeated pattern of behavior. Constantly disobeying, constantly going away from the presence of God. They forgot his commands. And this phrase is repeated again and again in the book. They forgot him. They forgot him. My people lack knowledge. So the Lord has a case against the people. This is God versus people. Imagine standing accused by God himself. How do you even begin to defend ourselves? One of the most celebrated uh, courtroom trials in history is the Nuremberg trials. And this happened right after the Second World War, after the fall of Germany, where the, the Allied forces, you know, surprisingly came together in one spirit. And they want to try the Nazi victims. Of course, all the big names, they either they were killed or committed suicide, so they kind of, you know, gathered the, the next year. And uh, it was a, it's a long, drawn-out uh, court case watched by the entire world. And one after the other, the defendants, they, they came up with the same excuse. I was just following orders. What choice did I have? I was just following orders. I was given a command and I executed it. But then the, the, the counter argument to that was, there is a moral law higher that supersedes any other state law. Because this was a crime against humanity. That was the phrase they used, crimes against humanity. What happened to the Jewish people? A systematic oppression. They just want to destroy the entire race. It's a crime against humanity. What happened to the moral law that supersedes any state law? Yes, the king has instituted this worship, these pagan gods. This came from the palace. The priests went with it. For some reason, we're going to see why he did it. A political reason, a statement. But then God is bringing this case against the people. He has his own issue with the king. We're going to see that later as well. But his, this case is against people. What happened to you? How can you go along? I was just following orders, doesn't cut it. You can't blame the system. Each one is responsible for his or her own actions. And the number one defense that God brings to the table is this, you are my people. This is a specific address. He, he uses the phrase, my people have forgotten me. People who are called by my name. People who have my last name. How can you do this? Now this phrase, my people, is a, people, a term of endearment. It refers all the way to an old covenant that he made with you know, Abraham and his ancestors, his descendants. They belong to me and I belong to them. I will be their God and you'll be my people. That's the covenant he made. So you are not unknown. You are not some cosmic John Doe living a life you know, in isolation where nobody knows who you are. God brings a specific charge against his people. You are my people. You have my name. You're called Israelites for a reason. I chose you. You can see that covenant he made with Abraham, sorry, with Moses. Uh, it kind of reminds uh, uh, this. 
in Exodus chapter 6, verse 5 to 7, this is what he says. Moreover, this is when the people were in bondage in, in Egypt, uh, before Moses comes onto the scene. This is what God says. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out, of, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You are my people. So now the indictment is this. I have kept my end of the bargain. I have delivered you. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have given you this promised land. But am I your God? That's the problem here. Just a few generations later, people have forgotten. They have turned their backs on them on him. How can you go after the other gods? It can't be so easy. It shouldn't be so easy. Where is the resistance? Where is your fight? And that's why God brings them, brings this charge against his people. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, the reason why Jeroboam does it, it was not a slow uh, turn from the ways of God. It was a radical move. Just to, for selfish reasons. I want to save my kingship, my throne. And this is what I will do. I will stop serving God. I don't want my people to go to Jerusalem to offer their worship. What if I lose them? 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, we see the backstory to this incident there. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. Look at that. It's a political resistance. My kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, referring to the, the oxen there. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast of the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. It is not a mistaken identity. It's deliberate. Bringing an oxen. And then say, you are my God. An outright rejection of who God is. Now, why oxen? That we don't know. Maybe, you know, in that culture or even in olden times across cultures, uh, you will see this oxen becomes a symbol. A symbol for strength and also a symbol for faithfulness. So we don't know why oxen was such an attractive symbol, but then it also included other sensualities. And everything was so easy from there. This is intentional, an outright betrayal of God. The king started it, the priests went with it, and people liked it. This new thing was cool. It was trendy. 
This is what our neighbors are doing. And look at them, they are rich, they are sophisticated. They are cultured. And this is what they are doing. Why do we have to go up to Jerusalem? The travel, travel was not fun back in those days. It was tedious. Why do you have to mess up your schedule? Why can't we make it easy here? This is more attractive, more appealing, more appetizing to our senses. Now, why do we have to be so serious about God? Have a little fun, have an open mind, try new stuff. All this God stuff is boring, too demanding. And you all have taken this God thing too far. A slow drift. Before you know it, the Israelites were behaving just like their pagan neighbors. No sense of the holy, the holy God. Indulging in temple prostitution, sexual rituals in the temple as part of their worship. And hence God says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. Now, if you look at this, this whole phrase, this knowledge of God, the relationship between knowledge of God and sin, you can see that correlation in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. No knowledge of God and then rejection of this knowledge. Our knowing ability to know God or to know who God is, is corrupted by sin. Every aspect of our being, including the intellectual life, is caught up in the ugliness of sin. We have this drunkenness of mind. Don't have clarity. We cannot see things clearly. That's number one. We just cannot do it because sin has corrupted our core. Our whole being is corrupted. And the second one is the rebellion. People have rejected this knowledge. Religion is the opium of the masses. It doesn't let you think, says the world. It makes you dumb. Believe in all the dumb things, the irrational things. People in their proper minds won't do so, such things, cannot believe such things. They believe science has vanquished theology. Reason has embarrassed faith. An outright rejection of knowledge. And we look for alternatives all the time. And the result, verse 2, God says there is swearing, there is lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And what happens to the land? The land has become a cursed place. I brought you to a promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey. And look at the verse, it says, the land groans. It moans the bees, the birds, and even the fish. Now, we may not really understand what the birds and the animals and the fish are saying. They're moan or singing, we just don't know. For us, everything looks beautiful. We cannot understand the heart cry, but we do understand the cries of our fellow human beings. That much is sure. All of us will agree, things can be better. If this should not be the way it is. This is not the best life that you can think of. There is a better life. There should be a better life. We see cries of the victims whose blood is flowing on the streets. To violence, to greed, to drugs, all kinds of addiction. People struggling to live. And education has made us clever devils. Roger Scruton, the English philosopher, he wrote a book called An Intelligent Person's Guide to the Modern Culture. 
an intelligent person's guide to modern culture. This is how he concludes uh, his book. He says this, we have abundant scientific knowledge of our world and technical mastery over it. This is an age of information. We go to the moon, we are trying to go to the Mars. We have abundant scientific knowledge of our world and technical mastery over it, but its meaning is hidden from us. We have knowledge of the facts and knowledge of the means, but no knowledge of the end, the purpose, as to why we pursue this knowledge. My purpose in this book has been to illustrate this peculiar ignorance, not ignorance of that or ignorance of how, but ignorance of what, what kind of ignorance. And this is what he says, we no longer know what to do or what to feel. We are confused. We don't know what to do or what to feel. The meaninglessness of our world is a projection of our numbness towards it. Our numbness to the pain that is out there. We are flooded. Now we, we, we live in a digital culture. So back in those days, you know, we had to wait for the news to come. It might take weeks, it might take days, or maybe even newspaper. Like every morning, you know, you, have to, you get one news. And then you wait for the evening news to come. Or maybe radio. But today, the feed keeps going every second. It's flooding your phone. We are on top of this thing. So we are flooded with news. Flooded with bad news. And one of the symptoms of this is this. We know how to turn, tune ourselves off. Because this is too much. Ironically, it's the bad news that makes the front page all the time. There is always something bad happening all the time. And after a while, just fatigued, just tired of all these things, even the war with Ukraine. And you know, when the war began, every morning that was the first thing I was doing. I was just reading, analyzing, and reading different sources, trying to piece together what was happening. But now, months into it, doesn't have the same appeal. It's just a side note somewhere in your news feed. Oh, this happens. Something else sensational is happening. Something else is happening in our streets. We get so numb, we don't know what to feel. Where is the pain? Where is the anger? Where is the self-introspection? Where are the questions? Just so get used to now, the suffering, the pain, the realities of life. The meaninglessness of life is found in the numbness that we have developed. We blame it on the system. We blame it on the politicians and leaders. We blame it on mental health. That's the new fad. We blame this on everybody else. Except the root of all problems. The normalization of evil. Isabel Wilkerson, in her book, she says this, the awkward becomes acceptable, and the unacceptable becomes merely inconvenient. We learn to live with it. Live with it long enough, and the unthinkable becomes normal. Exposed over the generations, we learn to believe that the incomprehensible is the way that life is supposed to be. This is the new, new norm. The old standards are gone. We have lost it so bad that we are trying to define who we are as human beings. Uh, one of my projects in the summer was to work with a, a, a team um, of philosophers. I don't know why they put me in that team, uh, but it was an interesting experience where we developed some new courses in philosophy and one of the new courses, exciting courses, Becoming Human. This is the name of the course, believe me. Becoming Human. It just brought me a chuckle. After all these years of living, we are trying to define what it is to be a human. As human beings, how should we learn to live, to feel, to think, our values? We are trying to define these things because these have become problem areas. And if you look at it carefully, there is a problem that at the end of it, then you, may not, you may not even become human. Becoming human. 
That's the sad reality that we live today. People have rejected this knowledge. But they have tried to build without the cornerstone. So number one, to know God is to obey him. Now we talked about Hosea and Israelites and how generations apart they have forgotten God. But today we live in an age of information. We know so much. All we have, we don't look for prophets. We don't look for priests for wisdom. You can click on a computer and everything is before you. We cannot blame that somebody misled us. The information is right before us. So what will God tell us? James 4.4 says this. This is the New Testament. And James is writing to the believers. Adulterers and adulteresses. Such a, such a strong statement. Not a nice way to call each other. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I will read it in Amplified Bible. You adulteresses, disloyal sinners, disloyal sinners, flirting with the world and breaking your vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend, that is, loving the things of the world, is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are two sides here. No confusion. The battle is drawn. The lines are drawn. It's either or. Pick your side. God's people are expected to love God with all their heart, strength, and mind and walk in his ways. That's the, the command that we have. Love your God with all your heart, strength, and mind and follow him. But just like Gomer, We prostitute. We always try to cross the lines. We always try to confuse the lines. And we always try to camp out on the line. Trying to convince ourselves, oh, this is okay. Our calling is to go away from the line as far as we can. Gomer's story is our story, night after night, day after day, forgetting the God who loved us, the vow that we made with him, and going after other relationships. And we find ourselves in chains and bondage. People who are called to freedom find themselves enslaved in various bondages. People who are called to soar with him find ourselves found in chains. And this is the sad reality of many Christians today. And we bring dishonor to his name. We who are called by his name. And therefore the charge, an indictment from God himself. You have forgotten. You have forgotten who you are, you have forgotten your God. Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Galatians 6-7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So God is not to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap in return. The one who sows to please his flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Once again, two realms the fleshly realm and the spiritual realm. There was a time we lived and served our flesh. We lived in darkness, blind and dead to our sins. We didn't know any better. But he came after us, rescued us, opened our eyes, and then opened us up to this new reality, the spiritual reality, where there is this promise of hope and eternal blessings forevermore. And that's the new reality. 
in Galatians says, do not be deceived. You have two options. You, you, you know, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap in return. Now, Paul is writing to the believers here that there is a danger that you can be deceived. You can miss the mark. You can lower the standards of God. You can compromise the truth. And in the end, go astray in your hearts. It doesn't take much. It's an age of deception. Deception is there all, all, all around us. I don't even want to use the word fake news anymore, but everything is fake around us, including the gospel. There are peddlers of the gospel distort the truth. There is so much variations out there. I remember a story that is told, that's a story, about a nervous flyer. There was this, uh, a lady on a turbulent flight. And by the way, if you're caught in, in turbulence, it, it, it's a scary experience. Um, I had a similar experience in uh, the whole flight. It's a small flight from Buffalo to New York, I believe. And uh, you know, those are small flights as opposed to the jet, the bigger ones. And uh, so you feel the turbulence much more, especially if you sit at the back. And this was so bad, and people are, were throwing up on the aisle. You know, that's how bad it was. So this story you know, is, is about a, a woman who was so scared, and she was screaming and restless and pounding on the seats. And uh, there was nothing anybody could do, and because you know, the flight is midair. And the air hostess tries to calm her down, comfort her, you know, soothe her with all kinds of promising things, but she wouldn't quiet down. So without knowing what to do, the air hostess went and, went and told the pilot, but there is an old lady here who is very nervous and she's very disturbed there. And I don't know what to do. And somebody from the cockpit, uh, the crew, they came out and uh, came to this lady and they held her hand and said, Madam, look out of the window on the left side. Do you see the wing, the far end of the wing? There is a flashing light. Do you see that? And the lady said, yes, I see the flashing light on the left. Now look at the right. Do you see the wing there? And there is a flashing light on the end of the, the wing there on, the, on your right. And she said, yes, I see the flashing light. And he said, don't worry. As long as we stay between these two lights, we should be fine. We are on right track. We will have a safe landing. You and I know that is not the truth. The plane can come crashing down with flashing lights. It's not in the performance of the lights. The safety of the flight is ensured. False promises is all around us. But that's what surprisingly quiets us down. That's what keeps us going. That's what's comforting. Not the truth. We crave for these false news. We gravitate towards them. Doesn't matter what we tell ourselves about the gospel, about God's ways. Truth is exclusive. It doesn't care for our opinions. Works of the flesh, works of the spirit. That's the choice that we have. Actions flowing from our fallen self, the old nature and the actions flowing from the new nature. We sow towards our flesh or we sow towards our spirit. These are the two choices. There is no middle ground. And we try to live and build a family or society without God in this picture. And there is no hope. To know God is to delight Him, delight in Him. This is the relational aspect. Not just informational aspect, but relational aspect. Because once you know God, then you want to be in His presence, to delight in His presence. We don't want anything else. Nothing else comforts us anymore. Nothing else delights us like God. To know God is to delight in Him. Once again, I love this verse, Psalm 16, verse 11. Once again, David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
not fleeting moments of joy, but fullness of joy, whatever that is. The fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything we need are in his presence. Everything that will really make us happy, safe, is in his presence. He is the one who can fulfill the deepest desires. Without him, we cannot live. He has the way of life. He is the way. He not only shows us the path of life, he is the way of life. And there is no other way. And that's the foundation of our faith. We know that. But why is it that we find ourselves going astray in our hearts? Why is it that we always try to blur the lines? Why is it that we want to sow for our pleasure, for our, for our flesh? That's the question before us. And that's the question God brings before us. Often we find other things take precedence over God himself, over Jesus. Can we truly say Jesus is my Lord? That I have brought everything under his kingship, his lordship. He is my Lord. Including my desires. My deepest desires. I want him to be the Lord of my life. Every moment, every thought, every desire, every action. Belongs to him. The answer is no. Then you find yourself in the dark. Facing this question. People who are called by my name. People who have enjoyed my favor. People who know the truth. Who have received my blessings, my protection. Have forgotten me. And John Piper offers a perceptive warning here. Um, in his book, Hunger for God, he says this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God. This is a relational aspect that we have with God. The more we want to know him, the hunger, there is a hunger there. And he says the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality. We drink it every night. The slow drift, the slow drift, the works that pleases our flesh, that's the greatest enemy. That's what dulls our appetite for God, stops us from following him with all our hearts. The greatest adversary of love, of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. We don't even know that we are slipping. Our priorities are messed up. God is not the number one anymore. He is not the Lord of your life. We have let other things encroach upon our love for God. We live in an age of distractions. We have endless distractions. The little things, the simple pleasures, the blessings, the apple pie, sounds so delicious, so inviting, so appetizing. Nothing harm, but you eat too much of it, you know what happens. There is a time, there is an age where we have to say, that's enough. Maybe a slice, that's about it. Maybe some of us have to walk away from the table. Pie, not for me. Not even a bite. It's not the poison. We know to run away from poison. But the distractions. What looks harmless. What looks simple. Everybody else is doing. Look at them. They are doing fine. The patterns of this world. That's what distracts us. That's what keeps us, holds us down. From following God with all our hearts. Dulls our intensity for God. Number three, to know God is to honor his words. To know God is to honor his words. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Now we read that verse in Galatians 6, 7. 
how can we mock God? We can if we treat his words in disdain. We know his Bible is his word. He has laid out his principles for us. He has shown the way how to live, how to love. There are boundaries. There are commands. Then we try to twist it. We try to trifle with it. We got to read it as it ought to be. We can't read selectively. Only the portions we like, and then ignore the ones we don't like. Ignore the ones that don't sit well with us. I disagree with this part, but I like this part. It's not our book, it's not our words. We don't get to choose what, what we like. It's his word. God's, God's word says, you will reap what you sow. Our actions will have consequences. Just one of the things I just want to point out. Now, we live in an age of grace. And we love that word. I love that word, the term grace. Grace upon grace. That's what we need. It's one of my passwords. I don't want to say that. but Grace upon grace, without which we cannot live. We love that term so much. But then it also has to be balanced with this verse that we read. What we sow, we will reap. Now, if I believe I'm under grace or God is love, there is a trend, there is a, a teaching that says, like, you can't get away with it. It doesn't matter what I sow. Everything is forgotten. Everything is forgiven. You're all good. Grace covers everything. Yes and no. Doesn't matter how I choose my life or choose to live my life. I will still enjoy God's blessings. You know, sin has its charm. We can't deny that. It has its allurement. And that's why we go after it. However fleeting that is, however momentary that is, it has its own charm. Pleasures are, are short-lived, but it does have some kind of a pleasure. It's exciting, it's adventurous. It stimulates the flesh. But then listen to this uh, quote. I don't know who said it, but it kind of stuck with me. Sin does not serve well as gardener of your soul. If sin was your gardener, it will not do a good job. Look what it does. It landscapes the contour of the soul until all that is beautiful has been made ugly, until all that is high is made low, until all that is promising is wasted. Then life is like a desert, parched and barren. It is drained of purpose. It is bleached of happiness. Sin is not wise, but wasteful. It is not a gate, but only a grave. There is danger there. Sin has consequences. The principle here is confessing and repenting doesn't stop us from harvesting. It's so crucial to understand. We will repent, we will confess, we will ask for the grace of God, and yes, grace of God will cover our sins. But sometimes it doesn't stop us from harvesting what we sowed. Grace means that God in forgiving you does not kill you. So that's what sin deserves, right? Sin deserves death. He gives you the strength to endure the consequences. Grace frees us so that we can obey our Lord. It does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. To ignore sin's consequences is to reject God's truth. Fail to take God seriously. In his grace, he's warning us. That's a warning. Do not be deceived. What you sow, you will reap. You sow for your flesh, you will reap for your flesh. We cannot compromise on that. We can go, but we just finished a study on David. When David messed up big time, he was forgiven. We read that passage today. 
the prayer of repentance, where he cries out to God for mercy, restore to me the joy of salvation. I want to be healed. Yes, God in his mercy forgave him. But then the sword never left his, left his family. He had to pay dearly till the end of his life. His sons, one after the other, they were killed brutally. Murder never left his home. Sin has consequences. That's one side. On the other hand, we can also mock God if we don't honor his word, take his word seriously, take him at his word. If he has told you or told us that he is going to take care of us. He will take care of us. Why do we doubt? Why do we second guess his word? If we are sowing towards our spirit, then there is blessing. We have this hope of eternal life. The inheritance of the saints, the God who cares, the God who provides, that's his word. He's not going to go back on his word. It's a song. I just love the song that came before the, the offering. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Beautiful words. Whatever it is that we are facing, heaven has the power to heal. It's only heaven that can heal. God is still on the throne. He reigns. We do worship an omniscient, all-powerful God. He knows everything. He watches over us. That's the promise, right? He has promised not to leave us and forsake us. Isaiah 40, 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Why do you say this? Why do you doubt? That's not who the who we serve. That's not the God we serve. We know him to be faithful. He has proved his faithfulness again and again. He has proved his love on the cross. What more evidence do we want? It's the devil, the enemy of our soul, who's a liar, who's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, nothing else. He's the one who's speaking. Sowing the seeds of doubt, words of unbelief, stealing our joy, our peace, our sleep. I've been through those moments. It's not fun. You and I have to go back to his word, take his word, take him at his word. Trust him with all our heart that he is going to take us home. He has promised and he's going to do it. His way. Not my way, but he's going to do it his way. But we will be home. That's on him. I just love Hosea. goes on, the book of Hosea. God shows his love. First he puts, him, puts you know, the people on the dock and he brings his indictments on him. He charges him of unfaithfulness, infidelity. You have forgotten me. How can you do this? I have kept my end of the bargain. I have kept my promises. I have blessed you, but you have forgotten me. But that is not the end of the story. Because usually when people bring people to court, they want justice, they want judgment. But that's not what God does. The very fact that he is bringing us this charge is to remind us that there is a way out. The judgment has fell on his son. He has paid the judgment, our judgment. There is a way out. You, don't have, you no longer have to be who you are. The land doesn't have to be in pain and mourn and groan. You don't have to be in chains any longer. There is a better way. Don't get used to this evil, the normalization of evil. This is not it. There is a better life. There is a better story, a better ending waiting for us. 
just forgotten. You just forgotten. So this is a reminder that what he has for us. Hosea chapter six. Hosea chapter six, verse four. You know, beautiful, beautiful. This is what he says. Uh, I mean, he's kind of contrasting uh, the people with himself. The people's character with his character. The people's infidelity with his faithfulness. This is what he says. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. Like the dew that goes early away. That's who you are. Today you are faithful. Today you make a, a promise. You want to be good. You want to follow him. But when you wake up, it's all gone. Our promises are not kept. We don't have it in us to keep our promises. We are unfaithful generation. We go astray in our hearts all the time. The simplest thing can distract us. Left to ourselves, we will destroy everything that is good about us. The God-given potential, God, we will waste, we will squander. The potential, the time, the talent, we will destroy it. I don't want to say this, but this kind of shocked me when I read this. Uh, have you thought about your life and calculated your years in days? Uh, the average American uh, lives up to 79 years. That's the give or take. Or let's say 80 years. That's the average lifespan of an American uh, individual. Men slightly uh, shorter, and women go on till 83, 84. So the average is about 79, 80 years old. Um, so the average lifespan, if you calculate 80 years in days, it is 27,375 days. Not a lot. 27,375 days. If you want to find out how much time you have left on this world, assuming we live up to 80 years old, right? You take your age and multiply it by 365, and then subtract it from 2,375 days. If you're a math nerd, you can do that. Take your age, multiply it by 365, and subtract it from 27,375 days. For example, if you are 25 years old, 25 years old, you have 18,250 days to live, okay? If you are 50, you have 9,125 days to live. If you are 65, you have 3,650 days left to live. It is scary, right? reality. If you count in days, it kind of mess you up. What are we doing? <laughs> we don't have much time left. Why do we want to waste it? Why do we want to squander it? Not living the full potential that God has given us. So for it, we don't live for this world. This world is passing away. By the way, we can die tonight. God can call us tomorrow, next week. That can happen too. The bottom line, we don't have much time left. So we know that, and why do we waste our life? There is so much that we can do in this life. So for eternity, that has a lasting impact on people, on society. God wants his people back. He wants us to experience himself, his presence, enjoy his love more than anything else. He wants us to know him and his heart. And this is where he contrasts the people's unfaithfulness to his character. To know God is to love him. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. I'm just, just going to skip a few verses here and there, but you get the picture here. Beautiful, beautiful picture of God telling, affirming his love for his people. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
And out of Egypt, I called my son. He was a little child. He didn't even know who he was. I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son when he was in bondage, when he was living in chains, the things that oppress us, that's what attract us to God. We don't have to hide. He knows who we are. I called him when he was in Egypt, in chains, in bondage. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Look at that. Didn't even know how to walk. He was falling all over the place. I taught him how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. They didn't even know I healed them. But I did it anyway. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them like a mother. I bent down and fed them, made sure he had food, make sure he was healthy, he was growing. The nurturing God. And verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? This is the heart that he wants us to see. In our rebellion, God loved us and he still loves us. How can I give you up? We have history together. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. I am merciful, tender-hearted, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Total contrast. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. There is no difference for us. We have forgotten our God, forgotten our maker, the one who loved us. You go back to the story of Hosea. Hosea goes to the marketplace, finds his wife in chains, sold as a slave, and he makes the highest bid. 15 pieces of silver, 40 gallons of barley, calculated another 15 pieces of silver. So altogether, 30 pieces of silver. But when God entered the slave market and found us in chains, found us as a slave, he was the one who was sold for 30 pieces. And you and I know that God is much more worth than 30 pieces of silver. But that was the price Judas paid. 30 pieces of silver, I will sell you, well, Jesus. He is far more worth than 30 pieces. But then look at what he did. He placed the highest bid on us. Hosea placed 30 bids, sorry, 30 pieces of silver on his wife and got his wife back. And God's bid was his own life, his own blood. He gave himself and brought us back. And you and I know we are not worth that kind of price. Why would God, the Son of God, lay himself up or give himself up, sell his life to redeem a wretch like me? Are worthless sinners like us. We are worthless, always going astray in our hearts. We cannot be faithful. There is no rhyme or reason. You cannot rationalize this. It kind of beats all kind of understanding. Why would such a God do this? He is so powerful, omniscient, omnipotent. Hosea could have gone and taken another wife. God could have done the same. He could have raised up another generation who loves him dearly, who would be faithful to him. But he goes after the lost. He remembers the covenant he made to Abraham. This is my people who are called by my name. I will not leave you. We have history together. 
and I will pay with my own life. The heart has reasons the mind can never comprehend. That's the beauty of love. And that's what he wants us to see. The heart of God. God's desire is that we will sow for eternity. That we will invest for eternity. Not for our flesh and bring ruin upon ourselves. Sow towards spiritual growth. Pursue him with all our strength. Choose life and blessings that come with it. His spirit will do the transformative work. He's the one who's going to transform our hearts, give us new desires, new eyes to see him and enjoy him. If only we let him. If only we are diligent to seek him and to love him. He will produce the fruits. He will produce the character, the good works that come from the relationship. He will be faithful and he has promised to take us home and we can count on him. We just have to be faithful. If we can do that, we will bring glory to his name. And that's what his desires. To know God is to love him. To know God is to delight in him. To know God is to obey him. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we are so overwhelmed by your love. The kind of love that beats all understanding. That you would lay your life, Father. That you would give up your life for us, Lord. Worthless sinners like us. People who always go astray in our hearts. A faithless generation. Lord, you come after us. You don't give up on us that easily, Father. Thank you. That's the hope we have, Father. We thank you and praise you, dear Lord, for what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, we, we ask that you would be gracious towards us, Lord. Help us to love you. Help us to love you with all our hearts, Lord. Captivate our hearts, our minds to love you. Lord, to, to enjoy you, to delight you in our lives, oh, Father. To choose you above everything else, Lord, in this world. And all the fleeting pleasures of this world, oh, Father. Give us the strength, Lord, to, to make wise decisions, Lord. And to, to be faithful, Lord. We don't, we don't have it in ourselves to do that, oh, Father. We rely on you for strength, for help, for sustenance, oh, Father. If there is anyone here who has lost it, Lord, who has forgotten you, we ask that you'll be gracious to them, oh, Father. That you will help them see you, your heart, your love for them, dear Lord, and bring them to you, draw them close to you, oh, Father. That they will make a commitment to follow you. And we pray for this church, dear Lord. We pray for... Your presence, your blessings, dear Lord, equip us, Lord, to be disciples for you. People who are called by your name, Lord, help us to be faithful. The message with which you've given us, O oh Father, to be faithful to the calling with which you've called us, O oh Father, and be a blessing, Lord, to the community and to the people in our lives, Lord. We love you and we give you all glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.